always feel like when we do scripture reading that, that I know a secret that you guys don't. So you got to stand up quicker because I know where we're going. Anyway, well, it is uh, good to be in the Lord's house uh, together and rejoice together and look at his word together. Uh, just uh, coming up on Good Friday service, of course, we'll have our uh, sunrise service and regular Sunday morning service. Uh, but I'm my plan is to keep it somewhat simple as we begin with some hymns and look at uh, the Word of God and, and uh, surrounding the crucifixion, and then we'll conclude our service with communion. So I, I'm really looking forward to that time of rejoicing with you and worshiping with you. So make plans to be with us uh, 7 o'clock on, um, on the 7th. Uh, also, men, um, just by way of announcement, uh, on the 20th, first and 22nd of April looking to arrange a work day at Joel Aubrey's church in Granville, uh, New York. And I'm going to give you some more information about that coming up. Just kind of keep those dates in your mind. We have been greatly blessed by sister churches uh, who have come along and just partnered with us on many projects. And this gives us an opportunity to just be a blessing and help them as they're seeking uh, some remodeling for uh, church planning, um, a church planner parsonage, and some other stuff. So uh, that'll be coming up in April. So keep that in mind. If you have your Bibles with you this morning, open them with me to the book of John. The book of John. Uh, we're in chapter number six, and I'm tangled up here for some reason. John chapter number 6, if you're visiting with us, we have been going through the Gospel of John. We're currently in a study of the Gospel of John. We are working our way through this together on Sunday mornings, and um, here we are in chapter number 6. I want to begin reading in verse 35. We'll read down to uh, verse 59. John 6, 35 through 59, we'll look at, our focus today will be uh, verses 41 through 47, uh, but I want to get us some context in what's going on here, uh, and I think this will help us. Follow along with me as I read. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I say to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day day. And so the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets and they shall be all, or, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father, except he has come from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that came down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, they will live forever. The bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. 
Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks of my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, I live because of the Father. So whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread that the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. Father, this is your word. We pray that you would speak to our hearts uh, this morning through it. Uh, Give us ears to listen. Lord, give me wisdom and clarity as I try to um, just share with what you have been speaking to my heart about. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Uh, I love going through Psalms 119 on Sunday mornings as we've been doing that here uh, for quite a few Sundays um, because it really gives us a glimpse of the Old Testament saints and their delight in God's word. Uh, They uh, cherish it in all of the ways in which God uses his word to bless us. Uh, The word of God is true, amen? And the word of God is good. Would you agree with that? Well, that's good. How about the word of God is not safe? Would you agree with that? Well, I know we travel far and wide to listen to speakers all over the world, really. And uh, we go to these conferences, not only secular speakers, but we go to these uh, Christian conferences to hear these must-hear kind of leaders and uh, the people, we've read their books and we've watched videos of them. And, but there you are sitting in the audience and they, they, they climb to the pulpit, uh, very dramatic, and they preach. And you're like, eh, it's okay. <laughs> I don't know if you thought that. Um, and I know always when that thought comes to my mind, the problem lies in me and not them. Uh, and it gives me great sympathy for you guys who come week after week. Uh, you're like, eh, <laughs> Not that bad, not that great. It was just, it was just there. Uh, could you imagine, however, having the opportunity to come and sit at the feet of Jesus and hear one of his sermons? To hear him speak. I think most of us, if we had the choice, we would, we would love to be in that upper room discourse. We'll look at that in, uh, in months ahead, who knows how long. Or some of you might say, I would just love to be there on the Sermon of the Mount. I don't know if any of us would say, I would love to be there in John chapter number 6. But it is the same Lord speaking here in John chapter number 6 as it is the one speaking about anxiety and how to pray in Matthew chapter 6 through 7. And so Jesus is dealing with this difficult crowd and he He preaches to them a difficult sermon we might call a controversial in our day doctrine as he considers the doctrine of divine intervention in our human inability. Divine intervention in our human inability. And now we'll pick this up beginning in verse number 41 where we left off in verse 40 last week considering Uh, God giving to us Christ and giving Christ us. We've seen that back in verse number 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. And so we concluded in, in verse 40, this great will of the Father that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and he will raise him up in the last day. Then he, again, facing because... He knows what's in the heart of man. In fact, it's probably the best place to start is looking back at chapter number 2. Turn with me, chapter 2, verses 23 through 25. He says, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. And he needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. That best describes the scene in John chapter number 6 and every other encounter of Jesus with the multitude. He is speaking because he, he knows the heart of man. He also knows the mind and heart of the Father. 
as we come to think about human inability, and uh, it tends to be a negative topic in our day. Would you agree with that? In fact, uh, we tend to think that it is an idea some medieval scholar come up with because he didn't like humanity and didn't like his outlook on life because, after all, it was the Dark Ages. Who likes that kind of stuff anyway? And so, surely in this time of enlightenment and the day in which we live in and uh, our perspective with we can do something or we can do whatever we put our minds to, a doctrine like Jesus mentions here is very difficult. It actually cuts against the grain. We have created technologies with endless applications and opportunities are everywhere for us. Our only limitation, it seems, is our minds and ourselves. In fact, uh, you see that idea back in John Locke in, in the time of rationalism and all that, this idea we're just a blank slate with endless possibility and potential. But I go again, as we look at these words, it's not the words of Calvin or Luther or any other reformer or Puritan that we tend to think come up with some twisted view or some rigid doctrine of election or predestination. These are the words of Jesus Christ. And many of you, if you have a Bible in your lap at this moment, can look down and see that these words are not black. They're not John the Apostle. They're not John the Baptist or any other... Person, these are words that are preserved for us. These are words in red. These are Jesus' words to a multitude who has seen everything that he has done. They have been ministered to him graciously the day before by being fed, and yet they still respond in unbelief. And just as they were about to take Jesus and make him king one day, and the next day they're walking away from him as some madman. So it just reminds you that the, the opinion of the crowd is always like the ocean, isn't it? If you live your life and you build your theology on the opinion of what popular thinking is, then you will always most definitely be wrong. We must build it upon the word of God. Well... Notice with me again at the text, beginning in verse number 41. Jesus, knowing everything that is in man, he needs no one to come and give him a course on sociology. He needs no one to tell him what is going on. And so in this instance, he he sees, actually we see this coming twice here in this passage, verse 41 and verse 43. We see it again as they dispute one another later on, as we read in John chapter number 6, and they blatantly say out loud what they've been mumbling to themselves at the end, the section we didn't read, and that is, this is hard, who can understand it? Jesus, just to give us the context, had had already been preaching that he was the bread of life, come down from the Father, and anyone who comes to him would would have everlasting life. He is the provision, the life-giving provision of God. In fact, what we looked at last week, this this bread of life brings back this, uh, this idea of he is the satisfaction of humanity's basic need. Our deep longing and desire is not met in uh, not met in sports and all the other things that we tend to occupy ourselves with and and deceive ourselves with, but it is met with Jesus himself. Uh, you remember he he's saying that he is that bread of life, he whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall not never thirst. He's speaking to a multitude and he he has just reminded them of this great thing that on the outset of having shown a a divine miracle of feeding 5,000 with just a small small lunch. But the Bible says the response, they do not believe him. Verse 36, I've said to you that you have seen me and yet you do not believe. Verse number 41 So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread of life who came down from heaven. Verse number 42, they demonstrate their unbelief because we know you. How can you be who you say you are? 
Now, you know what grumbling and mumbling is. You've been a teenager at some point in your life. Most of you, some of you may still be there um, in mind and not body, I guess. Someone tells you something, you respond back with kind of just mumbling. You say what you shouldn't say out loud in, in some kind of audible grumble. My brother, when he was in the Marine Corps, thought he was gifted with this and found out very quickly that his mumbling was more like saying what he shouldn't say out loud. And so for the whole time during his boot camp, he was a target for every drill instructor as he said what he should not have said. I don't know if he ever learned it. I don't think he ever did. What are they saying? They're saying, we have seen the works that you've done. We're actually attracted by the signs and miracles that you did. We're fascinated by, by all this. We, we ate, we benefited from your work, but, but, but at the end of the day, we, we don't get it. We, we don't believe They were hung up on how can you say you've come from heaven. We know you. We know your family. We know who you are. As if to say there's there's nothing new about you to be known. What a gross understatement. And a blindness, Jesus admits. Now Jesus responds with this in verse number 44. Look at it with me. Verse 43, Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Jesus confronted with unbelief. He's confronted with a people who's attracted by things that they want. They're attracted by the carnality of stuff, their their own fleshly appetites. And as Jesus is teaching to them, they they meet that with unbelief. And and so Jesus simply says, don't be marveled, don't grumble among yourselves, because no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. It's already closely connected what we've seen in verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. Again, I repeat that glorious reality that God has given us, Jesus. <laughs> But the more glorious thought, he has given Jesus us. And that may sit in later on for you. I want you to consider what he is saying here in verse number 44, and we'll look at it and just kind of walk through it a little bit in our time this morning as we consider the inability of man. What is he saying at the first part of this? Well, I mean, it's pretty plain for us. There's nothing hidden within this. No one can come to me. As Spurgeon summed it up this way, coming to Christ is just the one essential thing for a sinner's salvation. He wraps up all of the glory and all of what it means to coming to Christ and being converted. And yet he goes on, to Spurgeon says, coming to Christ, though described by some people as being the very easiest thing in all the world, I would say that's spoken that way in our day, he says, in our text, it is declared to be a thing utterly and entirely impossible to any man unless the Father shall draw him to Christ. Do you see that? Not what Spurgeon said, but what Christ said. Isn't that what he's saying? He's not speaking in the realm of no one has permission to come to Christ. No one may come to Christ. He's saying no one can. There is something here in the issue of one's ability to come to Christ that is not inherent, that uh, that we are limited by our nature to where we are left without the ability to come to Christ. I don't know how that suits you or sits with you, That seems to be the logical explanation of what he's saying here in verse number 44. Now, what is he not saying? Well, he is not saying man cannot do religious things. In fact, his hearers were very religious people indeed. And humanity as, well, I mean, let's just face it, we've bowed at the altar of something since our beginning offering up sacrifices, living by some kind of divine guidance or uh, code. 
following some deity of some sort. He's not saying that no one can be religious or do religious things. He's not saying that man cannot be moral or ethical in a positive way. He's not saying that everyone has to be a murderer and a thief and a liar. In fact, I think we all know, we see it even in our society, though it is twisted and perverted, we all have a sense of longing for justice. Wouldn't you agree with that? Isn't that the heart cry of the, of the generation, the younger generation now? Justice, we want justice. Now, they don't know what justice is. But they want it. There's an oddness that we all experience. He's not saying here that man cannot be morally or ethically positive or in that sense have an idea of what one ought to do. He's also not saying that man cannot love his family or friends or, or even show compassion and pity on people in a poor state of being. There are many charities out in the world seeking to relieve some kind of sickness and ailment and suffering, and not every one of them boasts the gospel of Jesus Christ. Would you agree with that? But what is he saying? He's saying you cannot come to me. You cannot come to Christ. You cannot come and receive that which Christ offers without divine intervention left to yourself. You will not. No, you cannot come to me. Coming to Christ then must be seen as against our nature and outside of our ability. Again, there may be some offended at such a statement. And depending on what day of the week it is, it strikes me rather uh, difficult and hard at times. But it is Christ who's speaking here and revealing how much in need you and I are. Humanity is not in a case of partly sick in need of a little bit of medicine. We live with an innate inability to reform ourselves. I think he's speaking to the crowd in this manner to remind them uh, that they are in need of divine intervention. They're in need of God's help solely and completely and must not, cannot rely on their own ability. And it is remarkable How many Christians scoff at what Jesus is saying, and I would say much more than the world. As if emitting these words that Jesus says to us is taking away something from us, and I would say they're right, it does take something away from us, all confidence in us. It brings us back to that one problem which theologians refer to as human depravity or you might call it our natural sinful disposition. Uh, One theologian has summed it up this way and I think it might be helpful. Depravity speaks to the deepest inclination, the innermost disposition, the fundamental directedness of the human nature and confesses that it is not turned toward God but away from him. So you get that. He's describing what it means to be born and to be affected by the curse. Adam's sin and sin passed upon all men. Therefore, death goes to all men. All men have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. He says at the very heart of it, it reveals to us that our direction, our disposition is away from God and not towards God. Now, we could get into all the, the nuts and bolts of that, but I think that is a good, fair, clear definition of what it means to, uh, to have a sinful nature. So instead of the blank slate or basically good, mankind is born with a bent away from God and not towards God. There is nothing that does not have this influence, the influence of sin on our lives. And I want to just share with you briefly three ways this impacts us as a person, which I think shores up what Jesus is saying here, not that Jesus needs anyone to shore it up. It just gives us a more of an understanding of what's going on. And the first of which is the mind. The mind, the hostility of the mind. Now, there's more verses I could give you than there is time to give you. So I just want to give you a few Colossians 1.21. And you, 
speaking to the church that he's writing to who was at once time outside of Christ, who was lost in the world, he describes it this way. You were alienated, speaking alienated from God, and hostile in mind doing evil deeds. Christ crucified, 1 Corinthians 22, and to the, to the Gentiles that the, the message of the gospel and his crucifixion is foolishness, it's folly, and to the Jews they can't get with it, it's a stumbling block. Or Ephesians 4, when he speaks about we're no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding. 2 Corinthians 4, 4, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the glorious of Christ who is the image of God. So what is he saying to us? Well, you consider it this way. The mind and how you perceive the world around you is impacted by your sinful disposition. Is impacted because you're bent away from God. The way we view, the way we view His law, the way we view Him, the way we view Christ is all, is all impacted by that. Now here, by the mind, he means it more than just knowing facts like math and 4 plus 4 equals 8. That's not the problem here. The problem is your ability to turn from foolishness to faith, from disdain to delight, from acknowledging something to accepting it, from running away from God to following Christ. In this, we are all impacted. We were all born in that nature with a mind bent towards self and away from God. The second thing he mentions is our affections. We all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. We were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Or we could just look at the Ten Commandments. This says we are to love God above all things with all of our being and love our neighbor as ourself. And you and I both know that we fail continually and have to do that. It is not that we cannot love and do not love. It is, it is at best our love is bent and skewed. And usually and mostly and chiefly in our view of God. And we may dread him with some kind of slavish fear. But deep in ourselves we do not love him. We do not see in him delight and life and beauty. And the truth is, if we saw these things in him and in Christ, we would come to him and follow him. Here it is impossible to have these manifestations of desires and affections when we are turned away from him. I would say thirdly, we notice this in our lives by the will, by our volition, by the acts in which we carry out now, we, we act in ways that is consistent by what we want, by what we delight in, by what we love and how we perceive the world. So we, we should know that we act in according to those guidelines, to that nature, and to choose anything outside of that or contrary to that or foreign to that would be, would be ridiculous to consent to. In fact, John 8.34 reminds us that our will is constrained by sin. In fact, more than that, enslaved by sin. Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to it. Or Titus 3, we were led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hating by one, hated by others and hating one another. Galatians, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. Or you might see in our text, John chapter number 6, at the bottom of the text where he says this, verse 63, it is the spirit who gives life, the flesh is no help at all. You see, the problem is not just an external act in the things that we do. The problem that we have, the problem that humanity has is, is at the root 
It's at the heart. It's the disposition of the heart which is turned away from God. Or as Paul says in Romans 8 and 7, the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile towards God for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Someone has said once that a man can domesticate a wolf, but that does not make him a sheep. He will not go out and graze the grass. What we need, what you need, what I need, what we needed for those who have been saved is not domestication, but we needed transformation. Not a set of principles to control the outward man more. What we needed is something new on the inside. And that's exactly what Jesus tells us the Father is doing. We see the inability of man. Notice with me, secondly, the Father at work. Verse 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up in the last day. And I just mentioned this because it reminds us that, that we are in greater need than we first thought. And some look at the trouble in their life and they look at it through the idea of they need to make some kind of reformation or some kind of improvements and they will give themselves rigorously and uh, and maliciously to making those things happen. But Jesus says you need something else more than what you can do. And that's true for us. We need something that only God can do in the heart of man. Coming to Jesus will take more than self-determination. It takes divine intervention. And that's exactly, that's the hope you find here in verse number 44. That's exactly what the Father is doing, isn't it? No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Uh, the word draw here is the word we we look at for dragging or drawing a, a, a net with fish in it used later on in John 21 Peter drew his sword so it's the same word used there pulling it out and chopping a guy's ear off and and so you get the the idea of the image here it is the father at work bringing us to Christ now he's speaking of this internal work in the heart the inner man not referring here in the passage to that drawing which is done by the pleading of friends and families and some overzealous preacher telling you to come and believe what you should come and believe. But he's saying what is going on the inside, what is most significant is that inward call of God working on the heart. It is the inner working of the Holy Spirit in the heart of man. And this is explained for us in verse number 45. Notice it with me. And he's referencing back in Isaiah 54, 13. It is written in the prophets and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. And some suggest this idea of dragging that God is bringing us kicking and screaming against our own wills. I would suggest that is not the way it goes. That is not what Jesus is saying. It is not a violently bringing through external means as some religions have promoted either convert or die. What you see is a strong, powerful influence of the Holy Spirit on the inner man. I want to say in two ways, there's more that could be said, but for the sake of time, let me just name two. One, through the conviction of sin. He'll say later on, the Spirit's coming into the world to convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. He, he convicts us of sin, making sin exceedingly sinful. How many of you experienced that? That's the work of the Holy Spirit. He illuminates the mind which was bent away from God, self-excusing and promoting self, preserving self. And he opens the mind not only to, to see the reality of our sin, but see the reality of God, the cross, and all the other things that come with that. But not only with that conviction of sin, he brings the sorrow of sin. 
the very things we used to take joy and rejoice and brag about, now we feel great sorrow over. The second way he does this, not only through conviction of sin, but through the cure of a Savior. The Holy Spirit doesn't just convict you of sin, leaving you to wallow in your misery, but he points us to Christ. A desire to be rid of it, a promise of hope that that there is an answer that coming to Christ I might be received. It is that inner work that stirs up that hope that I don't have to live like this. I don't have to continue in this situation. That is a work of God in you. The Old Testament speaks of it this way in this transformation of the heart in Jeremiah 31. He says, And I will put my law within them, and I will write in their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. Why? Because he is in us. That's what John says. We're taught from him. From the least to the greatest declares the Lord. Or Ezekiel twice, uh, this passage is referenced. One in chapter number 11, the other in Ezekiel 36. Speaking of this new covenant. Now, you can follow along. With me, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness, from all of your idols. I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit, and I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Hard-hearted, stiff-necked, that's Old Testament language for unbelief, rebellious. And he says, no longer will you be that. I will change your disposition. I will change your heart. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. If you had that passage open in front of you, you would notice all of the times he said, I will, I will, I will. Both passages referring to the work of regeneration of the Holy Spirit. God does not bring us kicking against our wills, but changes it influences it. And I want to say this is just as clear as I could say it. As long as any person remains self-reliant, seeking to save himself, they prove or you prove that you do not know God and you have not understood the gospel. I think that's at least what Jesus is telling them. The flesh is no helpful at all. And yet those who have abandoned even now all hope of self-improvement and self-saving may find themselves under this converting work of the Holy Spirit. Thirdly, I want to just deal with this as we look at this, verse 44 through verse 47. Verse 46, he showing that he is the one who knows the Father, has come from the Father, seen the Father. Verse 47, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. And so we considered the inability of man. We looked at the divine intervention, God the Father at work. But I want to at least try to address the question, is it can't come or is it come to Jesus? Which one? I would answer both or yes. Now Jesus said in verse number 44, no one can come to me unless the Father draw me. And yet even strung all throughout these verses here is this invitation to come, is the, the promise of those who come that they may have everlasting life. Spurgeon was asked how a man reconciles man's will and God's sovereignty, which he replied, I never reconcile friends. These two passages never fell out. They are perfectly agreed. Then he goes on for the next page and a half telling you how that he loves tension and just reminded that God's ways are not our ways. I think, church, we have to realize there are things in this life, the things that the Word of God teaches that leaves us in tension at times. And it's okay. It just reminds you that you're finite uh, and, uh, and he is not. Well... We have seen Jesus teaches us we cannot come without the Father's intervention. But again, he leaves us in verse number 47. Truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I want to make a note here that coming to Jesus in verse number 44, coming to me is the same as believing or receiving. You know, speaking about something else or some other experience. 
These are all just different ways of saying the same thing. And Jesus speaks and invites sinners to come to him. You might recall Matthew eleven twenty-eight through 30. How does it begin? Come to me. I love that. All you who labor and heavy laden, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest in your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I want to say this, church, come and believe should be on the lips of all of God's people. When you share the gospel, when you give it to others, it should be on your lips. Every minister ought to have that as a primary exhortation to his people and to the people that he stands in front of. And I would say this, that if a preacher doesn't say come and believe, then he is not a biblical minister. He definitely didn't learn anything from Jesus or God in the Old Testament. In fact, Paul puts it this way in Romans 10, doesn't he, in verse number 14. How will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him in whom they have never heard? And how are they here without someone preaching? There is confidence we find here in Jesus' words and many other places in the Bible that the fruit of the work in which we, we do in evangelism rests in God. You plant, you water, but it is God who gives the increase. And I think in some way, Jesus speaking to these people may be the very way in which he is speaking to people within that crowd, calling them to himself, calling them to lay down any pretense that they are worthy of the kingdom of God or that they've they've been following Moses enough to enter into the kingdom of God. In fact, the gospel imperative of coming and we're called continually to come throughout the New Testament. But as we come, we give praise and glory to God because we find out that he would not let us rest until you and I found rest in Christ. Going back to what he said in verse number 37. But we're not left here, verse 47, nor in anywhere in the Gospels, just to dwell in the realm of the secret decrees of God. We're not allowed to slumber or to be lazy when it's concerning our spiritual condition. As if maybe Jesus will receive me or maybe I cannot come to Jesus or maybe he will reject me. It's almost as if to say, as your house is on fire, maybe the fire will extinguish itself or it gets to my room, so I'll just sit here and wait. That seems a bit odd, doesn't it? Counterintuitive. When such circumstances calls for running out of danger into safety, wouldn't you agree with that? In fact, those who do not, who have the ability to run out, we call them foolish. Now, let me just speak to those who feel troubled and overwhelmed and anxiety, with anxiety. And if you hear that there is hope and peace found in Christ, why would you not run to him? You may question all the other things and wonder about a lot of other doctrinal positions. You may argue or disagree with all that I said to this point, but this thing is true. If there's hope and peace found in Christ and you live with constant anxiety and worry, why would you not run to him? And for those overwhelmed with guilt, don't you know that there's forgiveness found with Christ? And that he has received sinners far worse than you. I know you think well of yourself or bad of yourself, however you want to say that. But he has received far worse than you. And does not that invite you, call you, command you, tell you to come? You see, we look at the doctrine of election and predestination. I believe it. Jesus said it. I got to do something with it. We preach through books of the Bible. We can't just jump over that. You'd look at me funny. We miss the, the assurance and the confidence that we have in that doctrine. At the end of the day, we don't use things like that to say, well, I'm just going to stand out here and stay in my own ways. No, the gospel says, here is what is found in Jesus. Run to him. Come to him. Turn to him. 
call of the gospel is to come in faith. And, and let me say this as clearly as I can. No person ever turning towards Jesus will not find at that same turning that God is already there to receive him. Do you believe that? The prodigal son found this to be the case as we have this story of all that he's playing in his mind. I will go to my father and, and I will say all this stuff and, and, and I'll see if he'll make me a slave. That way I can eat the bread of the, the slaves. They eat better than this stuff. And you know what he found? Not the father to make him meet him all the way there. But he found as he turned, the father was already waiting, anticipating, and running to meet him before he ever got to the father. And if that's true in a parable, how much more true is that of our heavenly father who is seeking saving those who are lost? And doesn't it testify as we turn to him that he is already at work in us? Now let me give you a few implications of this. And that brings us back to this boasting. I looked at the definition of boasting up in the Webster Dictionary. It's all negative. I, I guess you would assume that would be the case. Taking pride, pride in this, boasting about that, and all that other stuff. But, but I think he reminds us that as we boast, we're not boasting in ourselves. There's a boasting that is sinful and that is wrong. Look at me and look what I've done. Look what God owes me. That's, that's sinful. That's wrong. Misguided. But you and I are brought back as we consider Jesus' words and his work in our heart and, and we come back to boast in him. To rejoice and, and to exalt and to, to give thanks and praise to him. It's he who is opening our eyes to see, he who is giving us life, he who quickens us and makes us alive in Jesus. And so you and I that, are, that know Christ should, should have a song on our lips of praise and thanksgiving now. But he also refers to this raising them up in the last day at the end of verse number 44, reminding us that there is a day that when we stand before the bar of God, our confidence is not going to be on church attendance. It's not going to be on how much money you've given. It's not going to be on mission trips and all the other stuff that you could do. It's not going to be on how many times you mowed your neighbor's lawn. You're boasting and that day will be in his sovereign, gracious love. It'll be in Christ and in Christ alone. And those who have that boast in God, who have turned to Christ and found him faithful, those he raises up and gives life in that day. And he, he enjoys the praise of his people. And oh, how he will enjoy it that day when we stand before him. But not only does it affect the way we boast, the way we praise God, but it reminds us that we are saved through the gospel, not apart from it. Let me say that again. We are saved through the gospel, not apart from it. That means, church, you and I must go and share the gospel. That is how God is working in the hearts of people. We share the word of God. We proclaim it. We, we, we give it out. We send missionaries with the gospel. That is how God is working in the world, bringing people to faith. We cannot be removed from the means by which God's draws people to Christ. But thirdly, I would say this, there is hope for those who are far from God. Dear friends, we were all far from God. Do you know that? We're all going our own way, doing our own thing, living our own life, being our own men and women and whatever it may be. Some of you were saved at a young age. Praise God for that. Praise God for godly parents who brought you continually to a place that that you heard the gospel preached and they, they tried to train you in the right way. But, but even you needed a savior. And some of you have lived lives which has been a little more dangerous, a little more destructive, a little more evident that you needed a savior. Uh, the need was great for both of us. The need was the same. God who works in a, in a murderer, 
and an enemy of the cross and turns him into an apostle and a preacher of the cross, how, how can we not have hope as we pray for loved ones and family members who are far from God and we wonder they show no interest, they show no concern. And, and beloved, God loves to show mercy and grace in the day we live in. You can have hope. It is no guarantee. I know, and I'm not giving you a false sense of guarantee, but I am telling you, you can put your faith and trust in Christ. You can be consistent and share the gospel and can continue to pray for those who don't have enough sense to pray for themselves. And I know so many of you here this morning with family members that comes to mind as you think of that. We can have hope. We boast in God and we have assurance that God works through his word. Amen. Salvation is of the Lord, church. And if you're here this morning, you don't know Christ. I'd love to introduce you to him. I'd love to take the word of God and show how you can be saved. And Jesus, his own words is as simple as it could ever be. They come to him. They look to him. They believe in him. You say, that doesn't sound very hard. That's exactly why it is so hard. Because it's so simple, isn't it? It's a letting go of the trust in my own ability. It's letting go of my own resourcefulness. It's letting go of my own sin and my love for my sin. It's turning to Christ and it's saying, help. And no person has ever turned to him for help that he has cast out. It's turned to him by faith. Amen. Pray with me, Father. We thank you for this morning that we gather together. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your good grace to us. It is hard and sharp. It is not safe, but it is good and it is right and it is healthy. And it is something we need to be reminded of. Lord, I pray that your word would linger with us and that it would continue to work in our heart as we leave here this morning. Lord, I pray that you would let it be perfected, have its perfect work in us, would help us. Uh, We'll give you the glory for that in Jesus' name. Amen.